In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening. Welcome. Uh, so, uh, I think almost everyone was here earlier. We were doing a little Latin quiz reminders and uh, so I, I gave you the first line of the Aeneid anybody familiar with that anybody study Latin read the Aeneid Virgil's Aeneid my sister would know it but you're a dork sorry anyway so <clears throat> tonight is our last night and uh, we'll do some uh, review and uh, uh, P, uh, just a quick talk uh, mention of the next class but um, in terms of the review uh, I'll go through the, the some of the stuff I circulated by email and I'll show them on screen and uh, it would it would be very helpful if <laughs> prop, prompter Propter hoc? <laughs> Post hoc propter hoc. It would be very helpful if, if we all could get to the point where we're familiar with the categories and, um, and the structure of the organization of the categories and um, the way things are defined and the comparisons between objects those those three things so diving into the handouts let's see so the first one is our familiar chart here Phenomena, objects, subjects, methods that lead to cognition of objects and subjects. And um, also helpful is to identify, are there parts of this chart that were not covered in this book? So um, we start with objects, and objects are classified in terms of the way they're taken as objects and in terms of entity. The way they're taken as objects are as appearing objects, referent, or objects of engagement. And so somebody should be interrupting me and say, we didn't go over that, what is that? Anyone want to do that just for the hell of it? Good, okay. <laughs> So that's in the, for some reason, this system uh, puts this into the next volume, the next class. We'll go through that. So entities, objects in, are classified in terms of their entity into things and non-things. Non-things are non-conditioned, permanent, 
and generally characterized phenomena. We know of three of those, space, analytical, and non-analytical cessation. And uh, there seems to be some indication that those were considered to be, um, <coughs> they're not things, <laughs> because they're non-things, but they're the object of experience in a non-thing way by somebody experiencing non-analytical cessation or analytical cessation. Anyway, things are also synonymous with conditioned phenomena, impermanent phenomena, and specifically characterized, meaning that all things are impermanent phenomena and are specific instances, and they're not generally characterized phenomena, which are generalized ideas, conceptual representations of phenomena. But things are the sort of real McCoy, so to speak. From the point of view of, of this tradition of Vaibhashika slash Sautrantika, where everything exists. Samsara, Nirvana, obscurations, uh, qualities of enlightenment, and so forth. Everything. Things are divided into matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations, those three major categories. And uh, they're also class, uh, that's when they're classified in terms of their entity, their ontological uh, entity, their identity, i.e. different types of things. So there's three categories of things. They're also classified in terms of the function they perform as causes or conditions or as results. So then we see this in an outline form. So we have, we're starting with objects, knowing the uh, nature of the objective world was the focus of this volume. Objects are classified. This is not in the, in this book. They're classified in terms of entity, non-things and things. Things are, are classified in terms of entity as matter, which consists of outer objects, which are the objects of the senses, forms or visible for, visual form, sounds, smells, tastes, and tangibles. And then the inner objects are the sense faculties, which are subtle form and are not equivalent to the sense basis. The sense basis is the actual organ. For example, the eyeball is the sense basis, and somewhere within the sense basis is the presence of the eye sense faculty. So the, the eyeball is uh, coarse matter, and the eye sense faculty is subtle matter that resides within the eyeball. And the same for the other five senses. So when we talk about the datus, the triad of sense organ, uh, sense object, and sense consciousness, we talk about the faculty, what the faculty experiences, the consciousness that arises from it. And we don't talk about the sense base in the datu, when we talk about the datus. Then we have mind. And mind consists of two aspects, and we didn't go into that 
into this in this course, but just a sort of little preview of next course is that mind consists of two aspects, consciousness, and the scheme in this tradition is the six consciousnesses, which are the consciousnesses I just referred to in terms of the sense, sense consciousnesses as well as the mental consciousness. And then there's mental factors and different traditions have different numbers of those. Our tradition, we, we often hear about the 51 mental factors. And that system is from Vasubandhu in, the, uh, in his Yogacara phase. And uh, he divides phenomena into these five categories, omnipresent ones, object-determining ones, virtuous mental factors, root affliction, negative mental factors, secondary afflictions or negative mental factors, and then changeable or variable mental factors that can go either virtuous or non-virtuous. So you sort of have two different types of mental factors, just to have a brief little overview of mental factors. The first two categories are sort of faculties of mind that include things like um, intention, attention, uh, focus, understanding, recognition, things like that. And then you have uh, what we would call sort of emotions, virtuous and negative, non-virtuous emotions. And then we have non-associated formations, which are not associated with mind or matter, but are powers that we see uh, on a sort of surface level, we see emphasis, uh, evidence rather, for in our experience of our world. And uh, when they're summarized briefly, there's basically those that relate to the person and those that are not related to the person. And then entities are, or things, are classified in terms of function as causes. And causes are classified in terms of entity as the direct cause indirect cause, the substantial cause, and the cooperative cause. So when we talk about, uh, uh, um, let's say, a cognitive experience of consciousness, we have, um, like with visual consciousness, the uh, cooperative cause would be the previously existing moment of consciousness acts as the basis for the arising of the next moment of consciousness. The substantial cause would be the eye sense faculty, the presence of that eye sense faculty, and the eye sense faculty is a substantial entity in that in that it exists in the, uh, in the presence of its basis of imputation. And we'll see substantial and insubstantial uh, causes defined when we get to the 18 topics of Chapa Chuki Senge. Then we have the indirect cause. And the indirect cause is um, your eye is open and looking in a certain direction. I believe, and then the direct cause is the light reflected off of an object that enters into your eye. Then we have uh, causes 
that are class when they're classified terminologically, just in, sort of semantically, we have the enabling causes simultaneously, right? This other list of causes that we didn't really go into in detail. And then we have conditions. There's a causal condition. And, and, and actually, what I just described fits more aptly into this scheme. And we find this scheme more predominantly in the later literature of four conditions for that function as cause, causes of the arising of a phenomena or for something to so-called happen, whatever happen might mean. And so the causal condition for visual consciousness is um, the light reflecting off an object into the eyeball. The immediately preceding condition is the consciousness that existed the moment before that happened that serves as the basis for the arising of visual consciousness. The object is what the light reflected off of and uh, the dominant condition is the sense base, in this case the eye sense faculty. Then we have results classified in terms of entity or direct uh, for some reason this says cause, it really should be direct result and an indirect result. And a direct result is, uh, th those are sort of uh, semantic uh, categories that are, um, many of these are not like universally definable or agree uponable. Not everybody would, would agree upon what's the direct and indirect result. Of a, of a series of causes or a set of causes or conditions. Uh, but the direct cause is the primary one and the indirect cause is subsidiary, sorry, results, in indirect results. And then there's this other scheme that uh, has more to do with uh, karma, the uh, maturing of karmic potential or propensities. And then this is our short list of these methods that lead to cognition. We have this notion of the, what's a contradictory phenomena, what's a connected phenomena, what's a concrete phenomena, what's negation, what is generality, oneness, difference, and defining or definitions. So that's the summary level. The detail here we have non-things, the three types of non-things. Then we have the scheme of uh, form, colors and shapes is the visual uh, sense object. Sounds that are conjoined with the actions of beings and not conjoined, i.e. that are uh, sounds that are um, created by the activity of sentient beings versus those that aren't. Smells that are natural or manufactured tastes, uh, there wasn't really a clear-cut breakdown, but it was uh, either the four or six tastes of sweet, sour, bitter, and salty, and then there was some other scheme. Um, and tangibles are um, uh, phenomena that are elements, and then phenomena that are composed of the elements. And uh, it's questionable whether you can actually touch the elements but you can experience the qualities of the elements in phenomena that are composed of the elements, where there's a predominance of water in a glass of water. And so you can
quality of water in that sense. Inner objects, there's no further detail on mind consciousness. We have the six types of consciousness, the five senses and the mental sense, or mental sort of coordinating, um, sort of functional, active mind, uh, sem in Tibetan, manovijnana in Sanskrit. And then we have the mental factors. And here you have just the breakdown of these. So the next course, uh, we'll go through the consciousnesses, which are very briefly uh, dealt with because they're very simply defined. And then we have the mental factors and all the definitions of all these different guys. And uh, one of the most important categories is uh, this, the, uh, the afflicted view. There's traditionally five aspects of wrong view. And uh, I can't remember why my list list here that I pulled out from a long time ago has more of that. Oh, these are these are all one uh, subdivisions of the transitory collection. The transitory collection is code language for viewing uh, the existence of a self and that self having some relationship between uh, relationship to rather to the skandhas. Either they are the self or the self has the skandhas or the self is uh, possessed by, sorry, the skandhas are possessed by the skandhas or the self somehow abides within the skandhas. And then you have extreme view is really number two. Holding a wrong view as supreme is number three. Uh, attachment to like a theistic view or something like that, or a view of emptiness as being some something uh, definable or, or obtainable. Wrong ethics as supreme is basically um, denying the existence of karmic cause and effect, and then um, wrong view is uh, usually expanded upon as um, believing that some special uh, remedy is the universal, is the magical, all-powerful uh, remedy or uh, um, uh, salvatory activity. And there's secondary afflictions, uh, 20 of those. And then the changeable ones can go either way. Uh, contrition, sleep, and then these two aspects, different types of analysis. They can be virtuous or non-virtuous. The non-associated formations, we have the person and the others are acquisition, that somehow karma is acquired by sentient beings. So how, does that, how does that happen? Well, there's a power called acquisition. We acquire qualities that ranges from the ability to play the piano to uh, a sense of humor to uh, negative karma from having told really bad jokes or inappropriate jokes. There's life force, there's uh, species, 
nature of making different species. That's an odd one. Uh, there's meditative concentrations of, uh, of different realms. Um, facts obtained by thoughtless meditation is an odd one. Uh, there's name, word, letter. So this list is longer than the one that we saw in this text. I should actually trim it down so that it matches, but there's a bunch of odd ones here. This is from uh, a later traditions list. And we looked at the causes and results already. And then tonight, the Chapa's text is, is mostly focused on this area here, here of uh, how, how cognition of uh, objects and subjects occurs. Two types of contradictory phenomena, either directly or indirectly connected phenomena, are they identical or they're causally connected? They're in a causal relationship. And then concrete phenomena. And then there's different types of uh, cognition in terms of uh, cognition by negation of property or, or of their entity, uh, different, three different types of generalities. And then there's this notion of uh, phenomena having a oneness. That phenomena can be isolated out from the sort of uh, web or matrix of all other phenomena. So they're one in being isolates. They're one in being entity, conceptual. These are all basically uh, aspects of how conceptual mind uh, well, not actually, not actually, not all of them. This is uh, this is conceptual. Directly is non-conceptual, and so forth. Some of them are non-conceptual, but these ones are are, are he heavily uh, conceptual. Um, oneness in different ways, in terms of entity, or in there, they're uh, of the same type or of the same substance. And then, what, what, how do we uh, conceptualize difference, different phenomena, difference between phenomena as different isolates, entity, or substance? And then, what is this uh, slippery thing of definition, definiendum, and basis for definition? And then there was one other thing here. Oh, the 18 topics. Okay. And, oh, before diving into the 18 topics, so there's uh, this notion of uh, like a qu quizzing the relationships, and we did some of that last week, and maybe we could do a little bit of that. Um, Let's let's do this one. What are the basic subclassifications of phenomena? Anyone? Uh, Cynthia, Mary Beth, Mary Beth King. I can't see all the hands. Mary you, should probably, you should probably go with Cynthia. 
this is a, such an easy one. What are the basic subclassifications of phenomena? Well, entities and non-entities. Yeah, things and non-things. That's the base. That's the most basic. And what are the subclassifications of objects, things, and matter? What are the what are the subclassifications of um, objects and things? So we're we're working on this. Uh, sorry, this chart here and um, objects are divided into things and non-things. So you're talking about conditioned and unconditioned, or? What are the subclassifications of objects? And uh, so Cynthia has put forward um, conditioned okay. and unconditioned. So uh, conditioned phenomena are things and unconditioned right. phenomena are non-things. So that's that's uh, the, sort of the top level classification. What's uh, the classification of things? Matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations. Matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations. Those are three things. What are the, what are the uh, subclassifications of matter? Outer and inner? Outer and inner matter. Good. Um, matter of outer objects, matter of inner objects. And uh, what's the synonym of a of thing? You actually, Cynthia actually said it a minute Conditioned, ago. Conditioned, impermanent. Yeah, objects. Conditioned phenomena and permanent and specifically characterized. Those are the definite synonym, synonyms. And at least two of their definitions. Oh, what's the definition of a conditioned phenomena? Something subject to interdependent arising? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, it's conditioned in the terms of how it's uh, how it's produced. It can also be conditioned in terms of what in terms of what it's composed of. Those two ways that things can be conditioned, either by being uh, interdependently produced or being uh, conditioned by the parts that make up the phenomena. What's the definition of an impermanent phenomena? Changes. Give more detail. It that. arises and it um, exists that. and then it is destroyed yeah so sort of sum that up so the, t the traditional definition is a phenomena which does not last for a second moment which does not persist for a second moment is an impermanent phenomena and a permanent phenomena is a phenomena that does remain unchanged for more than one moment 
Does, it doesn't mean that it, can, it exists forever. Just anything that's unchanging for more than one moment is permanent. And in permanent phenomena, they don't they don't stay the same for more than one moment. That's can be on a gross or subtle level, right? That's generally subtle. Finally, subtle level because on the gross level, they look like they're there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the definition of matter? <laughs> Does anybody remember the definition of matter? And and so you know, this is an open book review. So we is can... it that which is suitable to be matter? Yes, yes. <laughs> you got to remember that one because it's, it's one of the funniest ones. Because it's so infuriating. Yes, <laughs> it's like they begin the whole, like they pretend the whole thing is very serious, and they begin the whole thing with this really ridiculous definition uh, so where would where are we in the text here okay give the definition of consciousness what's the definition of consciousness that which is clear and knowing yeah that which is clear and knowing is is one definition is a good definition um anything else clear and knowing and uh i, I guess like expand on the knowing part that which knows objects that which is aware of objects and that's really cognition did, did we have a, a little section on consciousness? Maybe not. No, we didn't. So, so in a sense, you're, you're saying in a way that distinguishing consciousness from, say, you know, in terms of being object-related as opposed to the more general awareness that isn't necessarily object-related, kind of a higher level, of well, well, in the Buddhist tradition, consciousness is, is by definition, so to speak, object-oriented. And there's no consciousness. And consciousness and awareness are synonymous. That's what I was going to ask. Could you say that which takes an object? Uh, which takes it. The word take is a little bit odd, uh, but yeah. That which... Uh, the cognizes. subject, is the, the consciousness is that moment of cognition, and it always has an object. Right. But That's right. Is it not true that when you're looking at the various layers of, that there can be awareness that's beyond the subject-object? It's not not in this, not in South Chantica, there's oh, no I'm sorry, awareness. No, I, I'm thinking more in the... Okay, yeah, within this yeah. context, no, okay. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, so I, I should have made that clear, that all of this we should be uh, holding to the the South, Vaibhashika Sautrantika. Sorry, because I, I don't dwell in that world all the time, so I, I, <laughs> I sometimes forget where the box is, you know. Yeah, and non-associated compositional factors, you know, just like the, the definitions are very sort of formal, but uh, just generally... And uh, sort of a gloss on non-associated formations. 
So isn't that which that which doesn't belong in the other two categories? Yeah, that which is a thing, things which are not matter and not mind. Right. Unconditioned phenomena. Okay. Uh, what is the relationship between object and object of a mind? We're talking about the circles. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is, are these identical the or exclusive? Yeah, uh, we have one vote for the same. Any, any dissenting votes? And what's the what's the significance of that? Why are they the same? Because there's no such thing as an object without a mind. Uh, well, that, the, an object that cannot be an object of mind. All objects, by definition, can be objects of of mind. Good. That's kind of the flip side of what I just said about a minute ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's, I right. was, that's what I was thinking. Actually, they were right back in the same place. What's the relationship between shape and color? <laughs> this is a little bit of a tricky one, well, I think. That's the one that I'm always challenged by whether which view we're looking at, because they could either be viewed as the both the same in that color defines shape. Yeah, here they're here they're considered separate entities. But otherwise, they're the two different characteristics of a visual Form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two different objects of uh, visual consciousness. Or types oh, in which case, of I, I guess relationship means that they are completely separate. Completely separate, exclusive, exclu exclus excluded, exclusionary, mutually sorry, mutually exclusive. So when they're the same, we say identical. When they're completely different we say mutually exclusive and when uh, there's some what's called a common locus and we'll see, we see that terminology when there's a common locus that means they overlap in some way and uh, and the the remaining option is that one set is, one is a subset of the other And um, what's the relationship? Sorry, is whatever is white necessarily a color? And if so, why? This is the the big tricky one that everybody loves in this tradition. That goes back. I think we talked a little bit about it. Of like, what is whiteness and a, a piece of paper? Does it have whiteness? Is it white? Is it a white piece of paper? You know. Oh, is it the? I don't remember the science of whether white is the presence of all colors versus the absence of all colors. I thought. It, I, that's yeah. That's actually not relevant. It's not this. related to this. Yeah. No. Uh, what they're getting at is. Just does is white that, count as a color? No, it is. What is, do they mean? The, the thing itself is not white, only the right, color is white. Right, the right. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. It's not about white as a color. Right. It's about it, like, it's the same a, thing it's if about it were red the, or blue. It's about that phenomena have different characteristics. 
and one characteristic is their color, one is their shape, one is their smell, one is their taste, one is their sound, you know, all these different things. And uh, so, um, is, is whatever is white necessarily a color? So, is there uh, a... Oh. Is one point of view that it's not a color that the color is just a is just a, something that occurs through the reflection. Right. So there there is the the color white, which is the, which is a color, and then there's phenomena which are white, which are not colors. So it's not a characteristic of the thing. Is that what they're trying to point out? Right. It's not. It's not. It's a characteristic, but it's a. It's not the thing itself. A white horse is a horse, and a horse is not a color. Oh, so they're just saying the thing is not a color. That's right. A tangible object is not a color. That needed to be said. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great comment. <laughs> That's great. Is a yellow snow mountain that appears to an eye consciousness an object or not? This is another really tricky one. What the hell is a yellow snow mountain? Anyone? That's a, a snow mountain to somebody who has jaundice, right? Yeah, that's a, a, the object of a person with jaundice who's looking at a snow mountain. Now, what color is snow? Obviously, snow is white. And so if they're seeing yellow, then it's not valid cognition. And so what is appearing to the eye consciousness? So uh, this says the yellow snow mountain that appears to an eye consciousness. So uh, there's, there's the snow mountain that supposedly exists externally in this system. And the snow mountain is white, but it generates an image which is perceived by the visual consciousness system as yellow, and that's what appears to the consciousness. So the inner uh, representation of the outer object is is what appears to the consciousness. So the outer object is a white snow mountain, and the inner object, the appearing object, is a yellow snow mountain. So is that an object or not? Is it a thing? This is a tricky one. And there's different views on it. So basically, either one you want to take, yes or no, you, you can defend. I was going to say that they're probably <laughs> looking for no in this case, although uh, in that the yellow snow mountain is not an object. Right. Um, it, but on the other hand, one could it seems like one could argue the cognition is invalid, but the there's an object there. Um, and so the the part that's erroneous though is in the mind, not in the um, reality, so to speak. So-called reality, the, since this is a school that thinks there's something there. Right. right. But that, I, I, I'm thinking they're they're aiming for a no in this case, but yeah, that's what they're aiming for. But but it's a it's a questionable one because uh, the appearance and the consciousness is that a phenomena or not? You know, it's the object of the of the. Uh, mental consciousness as well that experiences the sense ah well from that point of view i guess if you're just talking about the 
not the object, so-called physical object, but the object in mind, then that seems like it would be an object. Yes, yeah, so is an appearing object a thing? Yeah, I guess it depends. I don't know what their definitions are of Yeah, that. so we'll get into that more next with the next book, but an appearing object is a thing. So if we define a thing as that which uh, is the uh, main or direct cause of its the next moment of its continuum, uh, I don't think you can say that about an appearing object, but it can be cognized. So it's a little bit of a slippery devil. Well, next yeah, I mean, by of... that logic, wouldn't uh, if you saw a rope but you thought it was a snake, yeah. wouldn't that therefore mean the snake was an object because it was you cognized it that way? That's right. If you said yes to this, that would be the the implication. Was right. that, yeah? Then then the uh, snake erroneously projected onto the base, the sense, the uh, basis of imputation of a rope and a dark place would be an object, but in this system, no. So, in terms of that next yeah. moment of continuum, does that only re well, does that not refer also to the mental continuum of it, it refers to the mental sense base and the mental consciousness. So what's the mental sense base? Mental sense base, meaning like the ability to know the... the yeah, what's the sense base for the ability to know? The mind. The mind. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, it's very simple, but it's yeah, also yeah, a little yeah. bit tricky. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The mind is the mental sense base, and the uh, the consciousness affiliated with the mind is the mind consciousness or the right. mental consciousness, and the object. You know, so this this also we should go through tonight. Thank you for for getting there. Is that the uh, the object of the mental consciousness? What are what are objects of the mental consciousness? You know, we we look at the five senses and we broke those down into little categories and types, but we didn't really go into a mental object. It could be like memory, emotion, thought, that kind of thing. Is that or so are are those like different different objects of the mental consciousness? Memories and thoughts. Are they different objects? I I don't know in this school. I don't know how they think about this. I must admit, I don't recall that. Um, yeah. I mean, those are like different flavors, you could say, of of you know what arise in mind. But are they? Yeah. So there's basically two two objects of the mental consciousness in this system. One object of the mental consciousness is the. Uh, uh, these five sense consciousnesses can be taken as objects by the mental sense consciousness. And then all the ones that don't come from the, from the senses are the other category. Right. Everything else is considered thought. Okay. So what I was describing were mostly thought and then... The right. Different object. types of thoughts. Yeah. But both are equally considered objects of mind consciousness. That's right. And... Uh, and so thought then has this, has the subtlety of um, when you think of a, uh, the thought of a car, 
and the thought of what happened yesterday are those different um, types of mental sense objects the thought of a car as a generally characterized phenomena that you just dreamed up versus what happened versus, yesterday those or, or versus the the thought uh, of uh, what you're seeing right now well it seems like those would be two different things i don't know how they think of it in this school but if you're seeing a car supposedly through your eyes um then that seems like it would fall into the sense the 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 object derived from a sense perception but if you just you know were daydreaming about a car but not seeing one it seems like that's a different um i don't know is is, is that the same classification or the opposite classification i think it's the same i think they're all the same in that the object of uh mental sense consciousness is thoughts and uh thoughts can be conscious the the five sense consciousnesses or they can be um uh plans or memories or dreams oh, or images oh wait, um, they're, they're all thoughts but you were making a distinction of two categories i thought was I was, I was, yeah, I was. And so I, I was inferring from that that one derives directly from a sense perception and the other doesn't. Thank you. Yes, I screwed up. Yes, that's right. So those are the two different. Uh, I, I used a bad example. That That's what happened. So there's the thought of uh, what happened yesterday and the thought of a car. And those are identical. Those are both conceptual thoughts, non-direct conceptual, uh, conceptual mental objects. And then the sense consciousness of the color that you're seeing right now is a is a non-conceptual direct cognition. So, so if, the, but the, if I'm looking at a red Porsche, let's just say, or whatever it might be, a red Mercedes, if I'm looking at that, that would be fall into the sense consciousness derived object, as opposed to if I were just imagining a car without a sense experience associated. That's correct. So basically, a difference between a specifically characterized phenomena and a generally. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So basically, those are the two the two uh, different types of mental objects. Is specifically characterized phenomena and generally characterized phenomena, whereas the uh, this the five senses cannot have uh, generally characterized phenomena as their objects. Only the mental sense consciousness. So what's the relationship between a white sheet of paper and a tangible object? Subset. What's a sub, what is a subset of what? A white sheet of paper is a subset of tangible objects. What's a, what's a type oh. of tangible object that's not a white sheet of paper? Um, a red Mercedes. A red Porsche or a Mercedes, that's right. And are there any white sheets?
sheets of paper that are not tangible objects? No. So that's the way you, you sort of go through the options when you have uh, one being included in the other. What's the difference between the views of the Kagyupa and the Gaelic but concerning the relationship between white and colored? Never mind, let's skip that. We didn't go into that. Um, why do we study all this ridiculous stuff? What is the relationship between inner matter, matter and outer matter? That's, uh, what is your word for that? It's uh, exclusive, mutually exclusive? Mutually exclusive. That's correct. No, there's no instance of one that appears in the other. What's the relationship between an eye sense faculty and matter? Again, subset? Yes. What's the subset of what? The When it says ear, you said eye sense faculty oh. <laughs> subset of matter. Is it... It says uh, ear, right? That's what I see, but... <laughs> oh, did I say eye? Uh, I think. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Okay. Get the okay. idea. So the ear sense faculty is the subset of matter. And what's the type of matter that's not an ear sense faculty? Uh, nose sense faculty. The nose sense faculty. And those two faculties are what type of matter? Those are, um, oh, what's the word? Um, subtle matter. Right. Also called here... Oh. The different term we saw. Um, oh, I don't think I remember. It's like belly buttons. Inner? Inner. Inner, 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 yeah. Okay, I thought that was too simple. I thought that couldn't be it. I was actually thinking of that before, and I thought, oh, no, that's... Yeah. It must be about something more complex than that. Matter of outer objects and matter of inner objects. So those are the only inner ones? Yeah, the only inner objects are the five sense faculties. You don't and deal with like organs or, or anything like that? No, those are tangibles. Those are oh, tangible objects. Oh, of yeah. course. Then there, there was a, a, an, an 11th, an, an additional type of matter that's not on this chart, but that we looked at and talked about at some length here and there. Anybody remember what that type of matter was? That subtle forms? Yeah, mental object forms, subtle forms, forms that are only perceptible by the mind. What's an example of one of them? I remember we always they always say like the vow, and, I, and it's always a little mis murky. Mm. Yeah, they're not referring to the the documentary, I think. But <laughs> <laughs> what is that called again? What was the general term? Nexium. No, um, the mental object form. So the other, the more common mental object form is a subtle particle. Uh, Are things that you know mentally must exist, but you can't actually touch them. So like atoms or, and stuff like we, that? We mean? Yeah, yeah, we don't actually perceive them with our senses. But we know that they're form, and so they're mental object form. And the other one is that uh, this idea that vows have a sort of substance to them and, and there was a debate of whether those are form or matter or consciousness uh, let's see what's the relationship between impermanence and non-associated compositional factors that's an easy one 
How about somebody other than Cynthia? Impermanence and non-associated compositional factors. In one of the lists, wasn't impermanence actually listed as a non-associated composite factor? It was. So how does that I'm not sure that's what they mean. I don't think they mean it like a subset, like it's one of them. I they think do. Something they, no, they do. They exactly mean that, that impermanence is a subset of non-associated compositional factors. And then the next question is, are there non-associated compositional factors other than impermanence? And if so, give an example. But isn't an impermanent phenomena different than impermanence? the The list that they, the list that they have, in, had impermanence as one of the factors. The. Right. Uh, but an impermanent phenomena is is a phenomena that has impermanence. Right. Such as what? Uh, a thing. Anything. Anything and like what? What are a couple of categories of things? A computer, a car. A... Yeah, a, a tangible object or a visual object or you know. So basically, matter and consciousness are impermanent things, but impermanence as like a a, a power or a a, um, a functional the functionality of impermanence makes it a non-associated compositional factor. What's the relationship between impermanent phenomena and non-associated compositional factors? It's a really good one. So in this system, uh, let's see, uh, impermanent phenomena is synonymous with what? Thing. Things, right? So all things are impermanent phenomena. Those are synonymous. Other synonyms are conditioned phenomena and, and uh, specifically characterized phenomena. Now, there's three types of impermanent phenomena, i.e. things in this system. What are the three major categories of things? Matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations. Right. So what's the relationship between impermanent phenomena, i.e. things, and non-associated compositional factors? Maths are a subset of things. Maths are non-associative compositional factors are a subset of impermanent phenomena, i.e. things. Are there impermanent phenomena other than NAFs? And if yes. so, provide yes. an example. Toothbrushes. Toothbrushes are definitely impermanent phenomena <laughs> that are not NAFs. Thank you. The classification of causes, we didn't really f do that. The whole cause and results in enough deep uh, rigor to go through those. Let's see. Objects and objects of some mind. What's the relationship? Didn't we do this one before? We did. <laughs> identical. They are identical. What's the relationship between the last moment of a candle flame and things? Is the last moment of a candle flame a thing? They're exclusive. <laughs> 
Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to answer. That's okay. That's okay. I'm just watching somebody shaking their head. <laughs> uh, this one is the weird one, but I think they're exclusive. Really? So uh, the last moment of candle flame is not a thing. Well, isn't that the, the, because it doesn't produce the next moment of its own continuum? Well, that's why it's used as an example, because it has that tricky quality to it. But it, that would uh, mean it's permanent. Yeah. Not yeah, a thing. Well, okay. Otherwise, then it's basically a subset. A last moment of a candle flame is a subset of things. Thank you. If you want to go that way, but I, I thought I thought you were trying to teach us that 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 weird one was sort of falls out of the category of things, not. <clears throat> It's just an oddball. It is. It is uh, an oddball. <laughs> Isn't that it, one of the non-associated formations is like extinction of a continuum? So it's just like the last moment of candle flame then has that nap arise and extinguish it. But the, the, the nap of extinction is a separate phenomena from the candle flame itself. I just wanted to say that there was something that could come <laughs> along to snuff it out and it wasn't going to last forever. I agree. <laughs> A snuffer. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, what's the relationship between object and object of omniscience? Object of omniscience is a subset of object. Are there are there any objects that are not an object of omniscience? Oh no. Probably not. No, so object is a subset of object of omniscience. So does um, omniscience uh, have any objects that are not objects? Well, I, I think my first reaction to this was, was maybe along those lines, but it was that omniscience knows without the subject object, like it, it isn't a subject object experience. So in that case, are there objects of omniscience or not? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Are they, are they identical though in this? Like every object would be an object of, no. Yes. It depends think, on which way you're looking at this thing. I think it's yeah. identical. I think every object yeah. is an object of omniscience. And there's no object of omniscience that is not also an object. I right, because the things you sort of have when you have omniscience that are outside the realm of object would not be considered objects. I think so. Okay. What's the relationship between an eye consciousness and an eye sense faculty? They're mutually exclusive. Yeah. They're related. <laughs> Hopefully they're friends, but they're mutually exclusive. What's the relationship between colors and fire? Mutually exclusive? Mutually exclusive, yeah, there's no overlap. 
is a pink elephant. Sorry. Can we say they have a relationship of cause and effect? Can we bring in different kinds of relationships? Or do we just want the Venn diagrams here? Yeah, this is the, the ontological relationship. Uh, if if they're asking about the causal relationship, they would they would like state, like what's the yeah just just that what's the causal relationship between two phenomena? So here it's sort of understood that it's the ontological relationship. Is a pink elephant that appears to an eye consciousness of someone who is drunk, an object or not? This is the same as the yellow snow mountain. What's the relationship between milk and water? <laughs> this is a funny one. Milk contains water. Yeah, so... Uh, Would it is, be overlap? Is water uh, a subset of milk? I mean, no. this one has me wondering whether it's just to answer from the place of having modern sort of chemistry knowledge or not. <laughs> I think this one can be from the simplistic world of Tibet, of India of the third century or whatever this is. So um, is, there, is, there some, is there a thing in water, sorry, in milk that is not water? Yes. The part that's not water. <laughs> is there a part of water that's not water? No. Um, but there is water in milk, right? So there's there's an overlapping relationship where um, some part of milk is the same as water, and um, water is part of milk, and so then you would say. Are there other phenomena that have water in them that are not milk? And can you name one? Um, an ice cube. What? An ice cube. What, what does an ice cube have that's not water? It has only water. Okay, so is there a phenomena that um, has things other than water that's not milk? But it has water as well. With blood, orange juice, blood, orange juice, human beings, things like that, sentient beings. Yeah, cool. Okay, enough of that. Let's go to Chapa Chuki Senge. White, red, and so on. This topic introduces us to the five sense consciousnesses, and this is sort of like, as we said at the beginning of the course, the shorthand version of referring to Dudra. The Dudra is the, the collected topics that starts with the colors of white and red and so on. So it's like a short, it's like a, another way of referring to this type of literature. And which the, the main focus of which is the sense uh, objects, the sense faculties, the sensory world uh, as objects, since the next realm of study is the mind. So this is basically the non-mind part of phenomena. Substantial phenomena refer to the attributes of impermanent things that are in essence types of substances that possess functionality. It's a little bit convoluted, clunky, but a substantial phenomena 
uh, refers to the in attributes of impermanent things, so substantial phenomena are impermanent things that are in essence type of substances that possess functionality. It's a little bit hard to pin that one down. It includes material phenomena, mental phenomena. So mental phenomena are substantial phenomena. Non-associated formative factors, or NAFs, are substantial phenomena. So the word substantial, in other words, is not a great translation because in English, substantial indicates physical material substance and in this system it does not it indicates that um, they're impermanent things that possess functionality it's the really the key part of the definition of substantial phenomena abstract phenomena or excluding types of phenomena exclusive you might say phenomena that phenomena that are uh, the only types that are allowed in exclusive golf clubs, for example, refer to those that appear to conception as substantial phenomena, but in reality are not types of substances, nor are they impermanent, such as concepts. For example, the conceptual isolate of a pot, uh, such as the object universal. So these are all like synonymous terms. Isolate, object universal, or generic image. So when we think of a pot, an image of a pot comes to mind, whether it's visual or not. It's probably visual in this case. And that's called the generic image. It's also called the object universal uh, because we came up with what's a pot. And um, it sort of has a universal flexibility because it includes all types of pots. And to to come up with the concept of pot, we had to isolate the con everything that's not a pot. Um, let's see. For example, the conceptual isolate of a pot appears to conception, conceptual mind, as a substantial phenomenon, but in fact is an abstract image that appears to conception only because of the exclusion of its specific negandum. This is an exercise in complicated language, <laughs> saying things in a complicated way. Uh, it appears to conception only because of it excludes its specific negandum or object of negation. What's the object of negation of pot, of a pot? Not pot. Not pot. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, contradictory, non-contradictory, contradictory phenomena refer to two or more phenomena that are distinct and share no common locus. There's no overlap. They're contradictory by being either incompatible, such as fire and cold, or by mutual exclusion. Uh, I can't come up with an example, sorry. But, or they are directly contradictory or indirectly contradictory. Um, and they give examples. Uh, I don't have, I should have examples. But. Wait, I think, 
is like night and day are mutually exclusive. Night and day are mutually exclusive because they're incompatible. Light and dark are incompatible and uh, mutual exclusion. Well, we, we had some examples of mutual exclusion. Is, is this right? just going through the same categories that we were just using in relationships or is this slightly different? These are um, basically all different ways of explaining conceptual and non-conceptual phenomena. And uh, it's not not necessarily using the the four relationships or not, but it's uh, um, uh, well it, well it does use that the whole thing of share a common locus is definitely. I mean, it seems like it's talked about to... at least three of those categories so far. Yeah, it's using those categories. Okay, I just. <laughs> Okay. Uh, no, but it's sort of like it's not like the main point of those of to use those categories, but it's definitely using them. Non-contradictory, or two or more phenomena that are distinct but share a common locus, such as the pair of pot and impermanence. So, what's the common locus between a pot and impermanence? It's um. a trick question. Permanence. Uh, the common locus. Uh, which uh, maybe start with which is a subset of which? Hot is a subset of impermanence. Right. So that's that's the common locus between the two of them, uh, the, because there are impermanent phenomena that are not pots. So the common locus would be pots. And they refer to the place in the book where these are universals, refers to a phenomena that encompasses a specific instantiations, <laughs> such as noble object or thing. What are some examples of specific instantiations of uh, things? Is this like you have the generally characterized car? Yes, yeah. And, and then, then there's like a specific, my, like my purple car is like specific. Right, that's right. <laughs> right, and, and so which encompasses which? So the general idea of a car encompasses my specific car. Exactly, and does it, does it encompass any others? Yeah, all cars. It encompasses all cars, yes. The universal encompasses or pervades all specific instantiations of car. So there's this, we have this uh, um, innate sense of phenomena as uh, there being uh, certain types of things that pervade their specific examples. So there's carness potness that that uh, um, occurs in every car in every pot there's carness in every car sorry the ness the ness the lockness for example thing is universal since it encompasses or subsumes its instances such as a pot for thing is the set that includes all pots 
in general, universals have three types. Type universal, composite universal, and object universal. And, uh, oh, I was going to queue this up because these are, these are sort of important. Where the hell were those? Time. They're in chapter 13, right? Chapter 13 had all this weird stuff in it, universals in particular. So on page 172, and I'm diving into this one because this, this one is, uh, comes up again and again. So in the middle of the page, if universals are classified on the basis of how the term universal is applied, there's three categories, type, composite, composite and object. The type universal is defined as something that encompasses its own kinds. And so type um, universal really applies to all the types of universal. It, it's sort what, of a redundant category. What subsection or chapter? Uh, so we're in chapter 13, which is called Other Presentations of Ascertainable Objects. And then, then within that, we're in a subset section called Universals and Particulars. And there we're in uh, about paragraph five. Are you with us? A type universal, let's see, uh, examples include pillars, a human being, you know, basically anything can be a universal. Um, and then it says universal and type universal are equivalent. It's sort of like a useless, you know, to, to say that there's these three types is really silly. <laughs> I don't know why they, it's like the, the definition of form is that which is suitable to be formed. A composite universal is defined as a coarse form that is the collection of its multiple parts. So um, uh, composite universal, the two composite universals and coarse material form are equivalent. Coarse material form is a composite universal. For example, its examples include things such as a vase, a tree, a stream, and so on. Those are composites. They have many. They're composed of different uh, other phenomena, subphenomena, and they are all coarse material form. All coarse material form has uh, components. Uh, since a vase is a physical entity composed from the collection of its numerous parts, such as its spout-based belly and their numerous subtle particles, such as earth, wind, fire, and air, it is a composite. An object universal may be defined by the example of a tree, that which appears to the conception apprehending a tree to be identical to a tree, <laughs> even though it is not identical to it. That's, a, that's up there with... Uh, favorite st sentences. So, that which appears to the conception apprehending a tree um, appears to be identical to a tree. Uh, what is it that appears to the conception apprehending a tree?
You're muted, Mary Beth. <laughs> no, I was like saying it to myself first. Well, it's the image. Yeah, and the image is a synonym of what? A conception? No. Yeah, it's it's sort of a type of conception, but an image is a synonym for a universal. So what, it, what appears to the conceptual mind apprehending a, a tree is treeness, is the object universal of tree, is what appears to a conceptual mind. But the conceptual mind does not see the actual tree. So, uh, but we think it is. We think it's identical to a tree, even though it's not identical to the tree. So when, the con when, when we see a tree with our visual consciousness, the object of the visual consciousness is the so-called actual tree. And when the mental consciousness perceives the visual consciousness in that first moment, it also, uh, the, its object is the actual tree. And then in the second moment, we think about the tree. We have a concept we label it tree, and the object that is appearing to that conceptual cognition is treeness, is the object universal. Um, okay, so back to our uh, shared screen. A particular is a phenomena that has a type that operates as its pervader. <laughs> what is a pervader? in this case. So is that the larger category that includes all individual instances of yeah, the thing? That's right. So the universal is a pervader of the particulars. So a particular is the phenomena that has a universal that operates as its pervader sort of circular language here. For example, a pot, and here they mean the conceptual universal pot, is a particular thing. Uh, sorry, here they're talking about the particular. A pot is a particular of a thing, since thing operates as the pervader of pot. And uh, the pervader, and the only thing that pervades other things is conceptual things. So for pot is a subset of things in, a, in the conceptual world. In the non-conceptual world, there's no such thing as a subset. See the heading unit. I shouldn't say that. That's completely erroneous. Strike that from the record. <laughs> what I just said. Okay, so anyway, there's universals and particulars, and universals pervade particulars and particulars are pervaded by universals. And in that case, for example, a pot could also be the universal for relative to a blue pot. Yes, that's right. The different types of pots. Instead of things, here thing was the universal, which is sort of confusing that they did it that way. Uh, 
but that's what they how he used it. Relation and absence. So relation speaks of mutual connection and interdependence. And this is getting to the cause causality that Eric was mentioning earlier. In terms of the meaning of relation, one thing X is related to another Y when X and Y are distinct, at least nominally. And when X does not exist, then also Y necessarily does not exist. So they have an interdependent uh, uh, reliance uh, relationship of reliance one thing relies upon the other thing either uh in terms of causal interdependence or or um, compositional interdependence if differentiated uh, relation consists of two types intrinsic relationship and causal so causal is cause and, and result intrinsic is uh, the relationship of a pot to its parts is intrinsic relation. The absence of relation between any two phenomena such as X and Y indicates that either X and Y are not differentiable, even on a nominal level, or that even when differentiable, the absence of one does not entail the absence of the other. So they're not related in terms of, they're not in a reliance relationship. They're not codependent. Distinction and non-distinction. Distinction refers to multiple phenomena such as those that appear separately to conception, for example, a pot and a pillar. Such phenomena are distinct entities or types and exist as distinct subsets of phenomena. Pot and pillar. That's interesting. The way they word, the way he words this as conceptual phenomena are phenomena. Non-distinction refers to phenomena that are not multiple, that cannot be distinguished or separated. Um, in other words, vague conceptual phenomena cannot be distinguished or separated. Presence, that, that's a little bit vague, that category. We, we would need to see an example. And uh, I think in the next volume, we'll go in more detail into how the cognitive mind works in relationship to these categories. So in this initial uh, set of material, we just get int introduced to the sort of bare bones aspects of these different categories of uh, cognition. And then in the the science of mind, which is the next um, volume in this series, will go into the subtleties of these. Presence and absence. In Buddhist logic, the three modes of uh, and the three modes refers to uh, the syllogism, and they must be present to establish a correct reason. So the three modes are required to establish a proper. Uh, syllogistic reason. There's the attribute of the subject, such as a car. The forward pervasion is um, that the car is a thing because it's impermanent. And so all things are impermanent. And the reverse pervasion is that all non-permanent phenomena are not things. Presence and absence indicates both positive concomitance and the exclusion of its opposite, which is what I just did. The forward pervasion is the positive concomitance and the exclusion of its opposite is the reverse per perversion. Um, 
For example, in the syllogism, sound is impermanent because it's produced. The forward pervasion is established because produced must be present in its similar class, i.e. the class of impermanent things, as described in the logical entailment. If produced, it must be impermanent. So that's the forward pervasion. Um, everything impermanent is everything produced is impermanent and uh, produced must be absence from the dissimilar class described in the logical entailment if permanent it must not be produced so you flip around the, the syllogism and add a negative to it sound is impermanent because it's produced and so the forward perversion is everything produced is impermanent and everything uh, not impermanent is not produced is the reverse cause and effect in general a cause is that which produces an effect and an effect is that which produced by a cause there's substantial causes and cooperative causes and substantial effects and cooperative effects this one, I don't know. We didn't do this one. This is um, related to debate, I guess. Let's end the syllogism. More stuff on the syllogism. Definition, definiendum. Definition of a definiens. <laughs> Let's see. A definiendum is that which is def defined. A definiens is that which defines. So the definition of that which defines is that which possesses the three properties of an exist a referent existent. The three properties are it's a definition, it's established with respect to its base. So the base of a definition is that which is defining, and it does not serve as a def definition or a defining statement of any other object defined. A definiendum is that which is defined is that which possesses all three properties of an imputed existence. All, all f defined phenomena are um, necessarily conceptual phenomena, i.e. universals, Im conceptual images, etc. Uh, the uh, definiendum is, is an object defined. Objects are things that, or not things, so in this case um, conceptual phenomena, non-things. It's established with respect to its base. Uh, its base is the definition, and it is that which is defined. So it's that which is defined is established with respect to its definition, and it doesn't serve as that which is defined uh, for any other definition. We didn't really go through these. He doesn't give any details. We talked about this just now forward and reverse negation. I don't know why he repeats these. Direct and indirect contradiction. <clears throat> impermanent and, and not impermanent are directly contradictory. Inter indirect contradiction is cold and hot. Tactility or grasping at itself and the wisdom realizing emptiness. Those are indirectly contradictory. They're not. Direct contradictions are opposites. Indirect contradictions are things that are just logically impossible. Two types of logical entailment. We'll get into that in the future. Being and not being. 
um, refers, this topic examines the special case related to the nature of being something or not being something. <laughs> if it is said, if X has something that is permanent, that is it, it follows that X is permanent. This is just like an exercise in linguistics, basically. It's not that helpful. Negation of being and non-being is the same thing in terms of its negative. Um, this is an odd one. Existence and non-existence. If something exists, then valid cognition that comprehends its existence must exist. If something does not exist, then valid cognition that comprehends its existence necessarily does not exist. So this is like the other aspect of a, of a, of a thing that it can be cognized. But um, they use existence. If something exists, well, they do use the word thing. Anyway, that, that one's Sorry, not Peggy, very helpful. Just one Sorry. question on that. Is, is, didn't we talk about earlier the notion of very subtle things that can't be um, perceived? Oh, they can't be perceived, but they can be cognized, I guess, in the sense you can think about them. Is that is that? <clears throat> so cognition is uh, direct, non-conceptual or indirect conceptual. Um, so, they, so can they be an object of mind? They can be an object of conceptual mind, I guess. It's what I, the implication yeah, I, is. Yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, thanks. Anyway, the last bunch of them, I think, are not actually terribly important. And uh, they will be, I think, revisited, hopefully, in a more uh, helpful way. So just to conclude real quickly, all phenomena. Um, and, and we'll see that the term exist and non-exist doesn't appear on this page. And it depends on how it's being used in the, in the context that it is used. Sometimes existence refers to phenomena. And so you can have non-existent non-things. So there are non-conditioned phenomena such as space in this tradition, which exists, right? So exists, existence is uh, the sort of top category. Objects, subjects, and uh, here's the methods that lead to cognition of them. Objects consist of things and non-things, and things consist of matter, consciousness, and nafs. And that's pretty much it. Comments, questions, suggestions, reactions. Emily. Um, okay, this has to do with the yellow snow mountain. Um, so my question is, would like a gray snow mountain perceived at dusk by a person with healthy eyes be considered a thing. Because yeah. color seems so, like I'm pushing back the idea that a white mountain is a thing because it has everything to do with the time of day and what type of animal eyeballs you have and stuff. So like, yeah, 
that's my wondering. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Or, or, or like another example is, let's say the sun reflects off the mountain in a certain way and it turns bright red like at sunset or something right or right. the waterfall at like yosemite sunset, yeah. like turns bright red right that famous waterfall so how does that is that the same as the yellow snow mountain or different it's different how uh well in the i i mean it seems like it's slightly different in that it's uh, the cause of it is different. One is coming from the perceiver and the other is coming from the phenomena being perceived. Right, right. So uh, the, you know, basically the, the way that Emily phrased it, um, I think you said something like, would the gray snow mountain be an object? Whereas we said the yellow snow mountain was not a thing in this case. Uh, but yeah, here the gray or colored uh, by sun, sunset snow mountain would be a thing because it's the actual color so that's then, perceptible by all sentient beings that have uh, correctly working visual consciousnesses. So then... Um, um, <clears throat> Like, well, because I think what's what I'm pushing back against, but maybe this is just getting too modern with it, is like we human beings with our human eyeballs see it as white, but like a butterfly wouldn't see it as white. Um, so I get the point, though, that like, I, I think what I'm rejecting is the idea that if you are a human being with healthy eyeballs and you see it as a white mountain and the white mountain is the object, but if you have something wrong with your eyes, so you see it as yellow, that's not an object. Because I get that that's not an object, but I'm, I reject the idea that the white one somehow would be an object. Because that's just as dependent upon the functionality and nature of the eyeballs of the perceiver. It's just that more people can see it as white than as yellow. It's like the only difference I see. Yes. Like if you had a group of like a thousand people with, with this eye problem all together and they were the only people who ever saw the mountain and they all saw it as yellow and no one else ever saw it as white, then that sort of changes the validity of the object. Of the it does. If, if the correct uh, hum, homo sapiens visual system perception of the color of snow was was yellow, then that would that be the object. That would be a thing. It would be considered very not PC these days, and you might say it's very disabled, unfriendly, and all kinds of things like that. But it it also doesn't this I mean it also raises a question that in one of those other questions that you were doing in the test, there was the notion that the white, you know, the color is not part of the object. Or oh, I guess we concluded eventually that you were saying that that the object is not a color, actually. That was what that weird one was about. But, but yeah, that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, okay, so forget that part. But the whole notion of whether color is essentially, it's not the property of an object, it's really the, the result of, as Emily was saying, many causes and conditions. And it could even be just from a different angle, you would or wouldn't get the red reflection or that you were talking about, et cetera. So it seems like, 
to, to call one of them right or true or, you know, actually having a specific color does seem to be quite um, a little dicey. Yeah, so the earlier system at the level of the Vaibhashika and the Savitrantika, they have not yet really dealt with that, that uh, I was about to say nuance, but it's sort of like a major nuance. Um, they, they basically uh, have this, this way of looking at the world as being there's, there's the correct way of, perce of perceiving phenomena, which is called valid, valid cognition which is the, the um, non-conceptual direct cognition of sentient beings of a human type. And, um, and then there's the incorrect version as if your sense faculties are damaged in some way. And they don't account for uh, colorblind people. And they don't, they don't like, uh, they're homo sapien centric, incredibly homo sapien centric. They don't, they don't look at how uh, other sentient beings would perceive these things. And uh, so, so they haven't dealt with this whole nuance of, uh, you know, even, even if it's like one hundredth, one hundredth of a percent of all people see it in a certain way. That's a lot of people when you have eight, you know, 13 billion people or whatever the hell we have, not 13, uh, eight or nine billion. Uh, but that's that's a, a step that's introduced by the mind-only school is that this so-called uh, valid cognition is just a conventional uh, level of uh, evaluation. It's a conventional uh, um, assessment. And so uh, Vaibhashika Sautrantika don't have a notion of there being uh, conventional and ultimate valid cognition, which is something that gets clarified later on, in particular by Mipam. By the time you get to Mipam and this text that some of us have gone through called the Sword of Wisdom, one of the main things that he does in that text is he goes very clearly through a division of conventional valid cognition where conventionality is, is based purely on the majority of a particular class of individuals. And there's no, there's no absolutely correct way to perceive uh, direct cognition. Uh, there's of, uh, uh, to perceive um, non-conceptual phenomena. It depends totally on the physical makeup of the sense organs. Uh, but there is ultimate valid cognition which relates to the realm of wisdom and omniscience and so forth. And those are independent of the variations of species and sense organs and things and other external situations such as grayness from dusk and so forth. But so yeah, at is, this point, it's, it's, it's glossed over in a very simplistic way. Sorry. No, that's okay. Thanks. Um, so I'm curious with that, that classic example that they often give about, you know, different species and their perceptions of, let's say, water, you know, as, uh, you know, something to drink or ambrosia or pus or all those things. 
when did that come along in the it was that present even at the time of the vibhashas because you know and yeah I, I i was having the same thought as i was saying that because that is the famous example that's given in some texts that uh, there is no ultimate conventional valid validity on the on the con sorry there is no conventional uh validity because different beings see things differently and the the, the uh, famous example that Cynthia is saying is water is seen by beings of the different realms in a different way where fish see water as like air because they swim through it like birds fly through air and then little insects walk on water like so they view it as earth and then humans view it as this wonderful liquid and uh, supposedly hell beings uh, and asuras uh, view it as pus and blood asuras as pus and blood and then uh, or hungry ghosts as pus and blood and then hell beings as molten uh, metal we're not really uh, we don't really have access to those two realms but the you know the example of fish and insects is a helpful one and, but and when it gods, appears isn't it as it god's as ambrosia? ambrosia that's right nectar but like when that comes about it seems like that comes about substantially later than these guys um where does it appear first i don't know is it in uh, bodhicharya Vatara? it might be yeah, I was just curious if it, if it arose in a particular place. It seems so pervasive, but I'm sure it must have come in at some point. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting question. So um, next semester, starting in winter, starting in like the second, prob probably, or maybe probably second week of uh, January, We'll go into the next volume, which is uh, has my favorite color, purple, on the cover. It's not a great version of purple, but uh, it's called Volume 2, and it's called The Mind. And I know this one was particularly dry. Volume 1 was very dry and sort of clunky, being introduced to this way of defining things, and many of the definitions were circular and sort of silly. <laughs> But it sort of uh, gives you a foundation for like how things are talked about, the language of it, and structured, and the the, the whole uh, what's called low rick in Tibetan, low being mind and rick being um, system of classification or science of mind. So science of mind is much more interesting, and it basically has these two parts. One is going through the mind and mental factors, the mind being the consciousnesses and the mental factors, which is uh, a little bit more rote uh, or didactic, I guess, in terms of like just going through more categories and, and definitions of what's like lethargy and what's uh, shame and embarrassment and that sort of thing. Whereas uh, then it gets into the different types of cognition of conceptual and non-conceptual uh, self-awareness and other awareness, subconsciousness and consciousness and things like that. And, and the way objects appear to mind as the appearing object, the, 
the uh, apprehended object and the engaged object and what's the uh, engaged object of a conceptual consciousness versus the engaged object of a non-conceptual consciousness. So that sort of stuff. So that gets much more interesting. And um, I think, uh, I don't know about you guys, but I didn't find it, uh, that it was greatly of interest uh, some of the sections in the latter part of this book about the cosmology and the fetuses and things like that, uh, the inner subtle body. So um, I'm going to, uh, again, skip most of those. There, there are some sections of that in the next book, and I'll, I, I think I'll recommend skipping those, and I'll circulate the plan. And if there's, if there's a chapter that I'm missing, let me know. It also has very interesting chapters on uh, shamatha and vipassana in the next book. For some reason, it has a section on training the mind through meditation. How delightful. Yeah. So I'll just read the category. It has minds, the, the different consciousnesses. It has mental factors as part two. Then it has gross and subtle minds, and it goes through the tantric notion of mind there. And then it has mind and its objects, which is how mind uh, perceives that the threefold thing, as well as the seven, this famous sevenfold typology of cognition, of which I just listed a few of, of uh, conceptual and non-conceptual, self-awareness, other awareness, and so forth. And then inferential reasoning, and uh, further dive into how syllogisms and all of that works, what's correct uh, evidence and what's fallacious evidence of an inference and then training the mind through uh, meditation so actually most of it if not all of it is uh, definitely worth going through so hopefully be more exciting and engaging and and uh in, in that also in that it builds the material builds and you'll see that it sort of uses what we've gone went through in this uh, semester so so thank you very much for going through it. I'm really very grateful that you guys lasted all this way or dedicated few from <laughs> a much larger group. And thank you very, very much for your generosity, those of you that uh, did. And uh, just being here is being generous. So thank you for that. Any final comments? Happy New Year. Have happy a holiday. happy, yeah, have a happy holiday. Have a happy Christmas, Be careful. Hanukkah, or whatever Stay. it is. Stay yeah, warm. And a happy New Year. And, <laughs> and uh, hope you get some relaxation and some fun. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, guys. And look forward Merry to seeing Christmas you. <laughs> Say that again. Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa. Chris McQuanza Kwanzaa. Chris Mahana Kwanzaa. Chris Mahana Kwanzaa. Chris Mahana Kwanzaa. Chris what was the one from Seinfeld? What was theirs? Festivus for the rest of us. Festivus. <laughs> With the pole, the aluminum pole. 
And of course, you got to get solstice in there. Yeah. Mm. Tomorrow. That's right. Tomorrow. Four forty-five. And then it and then it starts getting lighter. You get more daylight. Yay! Thank goodness. It gets colder and more snow, but at least there's more light. That helps a lot. Right. That matters. It matters. It does. So thank you very much. Let's uh, dedicate and and by this merit may all obtain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank, Thank you, you very Dad. much. Thank you guys. Happy New Year. Take care. Take care. Have fun. Thank you. And see you next year. Bye.